Good evening. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S., where tonight our face-off is called Unresolved Trump's First 100 Days. And because so much has happened since Inauguration Day, we are unlocking our usual format to let us debate not just one, but four different resolutions, each a different arguable proposition about the impact of Trump's presidency so far. Also, we are going to bring five debaters to the stage who will not be arguing in prearranged teams, but each one will be flying solo, arguing yes or no on each resolution, depending on what that resolution is. They will be trying to convince you, our live audience here in New York, of the merits of their individual positions, and you also will be voting on these resolutions, and we will track how your positions swing over the course of the evening and which of these debaters proves best at convincing you that he or she is most right about Donald J. Trump. A hundred days, four resolutions, five debaters. Let's meet them. Hello, Jennifer Rubin. Nice to be here. You are an opinion writer and author of the Right Turn blog for the Washington Post. You've debated with us before last fall. It's great to have you back. Thank nice you. Nice to be here. And Rich Lowry, editor of the National Review, commentator for the Fox News Channel. Welcome back to you as well. Thanks so much, John. Also a past debater and a great debate we had last fall on immigration. Thanks. Chris Kobach, the Secretary of State for Kansas and immigration advisor to the Trump campaign. That makes you the only member of our panel uh, who has advised the Trump campaign. Uh, <laughs> thank you. All right, thanks very much. And now, Ian Bremmer, president and founder of the Eurasia Group, a global risk research and consulting firm. Welcome, Ian Bremmer. Good to see you. And here's the thing about you, Ian. You are a three-time past debater for us. I think this is debate number four for you with us. So thank you, Ian Bremmer. And Jamel Bowie, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Thank you for having me. You are the chief political correspondent for Slate and a political analyst for CBS News. You are our only first-time debater tonight. I, I hope I'm just not hazed or anything. That'd be, <laughs> that'd be really unpleasant. No, it's going to be fine. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome one more time our team of debaters. So what we're going to do, we're going to move on to the first motion. That first motion, again, is America First is a sound policy direction. Each debater will have one minute to make an opening statement. Which debater that is will be chosen at random. Ian Bremmer will go first. On the motion, America First is a sound policy direction, how do you declare? I declare yes. Uh, look, I, I think the point is that America First uh, should be leading by example. That's why I believe it's sound. We know that Americans are not interested in being the world's policemen. Two and a half million Americans and their families having participated in failed and expensive wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. We know a solid majority of Americans aren't as interested um, in supporting free trade. Uh, like TPP or NAFTA, because they feel like they did not benefit from it. Even though prices are lower, they don't see the opportunities. The American dream for many of them is dead. The point is not that America first as a concept or a policy doesn't work. The point is that Trump himself is incapable and unwilling to actually lead by example. So the fact that you have the wrong vessel, the fact that he personally can't execute, does not mean that America first as a concept is something we should be throwing away. Okay, we move on now to Chris Kobach. On the motion, America first is a sound policy direction. How do you declare? I will argue the yes position. Yes position. I think it's an interesting commentary on our times that this is even considered a debatable topic. I mean, it's axiomatic that the leaders of any nation should put the interests of their country 
uh, over the interests of other countries. Um, but I think it's a sound policy direction in practice, too, because if you look at how it applies in specific questions. So, for example, take refugee policy. Uh, prior to the Trump administration, we were granting about 93% of refugee applications pretty much taking the refugees' word for it most of the time. However, in the last 25 years, we've had 21 major terrorists who abused the refugee program as a way of getting into the United States. Now, we're putting American interests first, saying, well, the the claim of the refugee is going to be secondary to the safety interests of the United States, and we'll see. But I think that 93% is going to come down, and our safety level is going to go up. Let me give you another example. Uh, NATO. In 2006, the NATO countries agreed to spend uh, 2% of GDP. Uh, Right now, only five of the 28 countries are doing it. Our previous attitude had been, well, just let them do what they want. Now we're saying America first. Trump has said we won't support you unless you meet your obligation. It's working. Okay. We move now to Rich Lowry. Rich Lowry, how do you declare on the motion? John, I'm going to try to make this unanimous and vote yes. (laughs) Your minute starts now. Just so all of you know where I'm coming from, according to the President of the United States Twitter feed, I am clueless, incompetent, and to quote, one of the very dumbest people on television. (laughs) So there any... You're applauding that? You agree? So there are any number of resolutions I would disagree with and come down on the anti-Trump side. Is he a commendable person? Can he keep track of our aircraft carrier strike groups? Does he have small hands? But this one is just common sense. If Trump understood the fraught history of this phrase from the 1930s. He would have had to read some history books. We can strike that possibility right off the top. What he clearly means and has said repeatedly is he wants to put the national interest and our citizens first. And you can disagree with what policies he thinks meets that test, but no politician ever goes out there and says, look, guys, I really want you to support this policy. It will hurt Americans and help some other country abroad. So let me finish with this question. If not America first, what country do you want to put first? Perfect timing. <laughs> Jennifer Rubin, author of the Washington Post Right Turn blog, how do you declare? No. America first is such a silly idea, not even Donald Trump could have adopted. He has, in essence, um, repudiated most of what he advocated during the campaign because America is the leader of the free world. It does guarantee the international order that has kept the peace that has provided prosperity to democracies for 70 years. He has, for example, gone ahead and uh, dropped a very big bomb on Afghanistan. He is reviewing the battle plans. He still wants to be engaged, still wants to destroy ISIS. Uh, He is not leaving NATO. In fact, he's been uh, glad handing and affirming that NATO is no longer obsolete. Um, You can differ with how he's gone about it, um, but it's very clear that in concept um, he has not applied it because it it cannot be applied. America must be the leader. If not, bad actors take over. We've seen plenty of examples of that. And so uh, in that, I commend him. Thank you. Jamel Bowie, on the motion, America First is a sound policy direction. How do you declare Declare no. I think it's worth going back to the origins of the phrase America first, right? This is a phrase from the 1930s. It's a phrase associated with isolationism and anti-Semitism. It is a phrase adopted by people who did not want the United States to go to war against Nazi Germany. That origin is relevant to how we think about what America first means in the Trump administration. What it means in the Trump administration are policies that don't put Americans first. They put particular kinds of Americans first. Immigrants are not put first. Muslims are not put first. The kinds of Americans favored by the Trump administration uh, are, it's an, it's an exclusive category. And so if, if that's what we mean by America first, sort of this exclusive ethno-nationalist vision of the country, then obviously, no, it's nonsense. 
if we're going to broaden it out to mean, oh, yeah, America is great, we should do things for Americans, that sounds cool, then, like, yeah, of course people are going to say America first is a sound policy direction. But in terms of its practical applications, as we're seeing from this administration, it's, uh, it's bunk. Thank you. Jamel Bowie. Well, first of all, I want to point out that it's three yeses and two noes on the motion. America first is a sound policy direction. Chris Kobach, um, Jamel Bowie making the argument that the, the actual historical origins of the term put off a stink from this term that, are, that still persists and actually characterizes certain attitudes that the Trump administration, he says, are pursuing and he finds uh, uh, undesirable. What's your response to that? Well, I would say that when he articulated the, the view America first throughout the campaign, I don't think he was doing so with uh, echoes of the 1930s in, in people's minds. I think most people probably don't think of that when they think America first. Uh, you know, while I certainly agree that there is that history, I don't think that, that this this phrase has the same meaning today. Jennifer Rubin. Oh, come, come, Chris. I think we know exactly what that means. We know that Donald Trump uh, practically endorsed uh, Marine Le Pen, who is a fascist when he hires people who have engaged, dabbled with, uh, encourage anti-Semites, uh, white nationalists. We know exactly what he means. Rich Lowry. We are not in the 1930s. People can use this phrase, and it's okay. And the way Trump means it is to denote we're not going to engage in major land wars to try to democratize other countries, and we're not going to harm our economy to supposedly save the planet, and we're not going to welcome anyone who wants to come here, whether they are going to thrive in the society or not. That is common sense. Jamil Bowie. The, the notion that American politicians should work in the interests of Americans is, is banal, right? That's, that's just what politics is. And so to use a phrase like America first, regardless of whether or not Donald Trump knows its origins, actually conveys something. Words have a meaning, phrases have a meaning, symbols have meaning. And what it means is not simply putting the best, best interests of Americans first. What it means is a particular vision of nativism, a particular vision of exclusivity, a particular kind of America that works for some of us. People who look like me, not in that group. Jamil, are you saying he's using... You're, 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 you're contradicting yourself, <laughs> if you don't mind me. Because you're saying Donald Trump doesn't know the real meaning of this phrase. But he really means it in this nefarious no, way. No, no, no. That's that you're not saying, he, saying. Doesn't, he doesn't understand and doesn't is, mean. That is not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that America First has a meaning independent of Donald Trump. And whether or not Donald Trump likes the fact that it has this meaning actually affects how we should understand what it means for it to be sound policy. Go ahead, Chris. The, the point is that we're, we're talking about the English language as it's used today, and America first, buy American, uh, and, 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 and give priority to American interests. That was his central message. Jennifer. And now he's not following it. He is engaged in Syria. He's trying to work with China to get North Korea to disable their uh, nuclear program. This is not America first. This is good old internationalist, respect for our allies, American leaders in the world. I, 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 bring in Bremer. I, I think we have um, unilateralism is what Trump is about. There are a lot of al alliances we've had around the world and we've been constrained because we're forced to act in certain ways. And certainly you can have a bomb of Syria and be America first because you're not asking your allies in advance, oh, will you do this with me or am I going to get support for that? Then I'll go in. No, Trump did that unilaterally. That, that strikes me as perfectly we're, consistent. We're going to go Rich Lowry and then Jamil yeah, uh, yes, there have been some contradictions, but Trump said throughout the campaign he was going to bomb the heck out of ISIS. So it's not surprising 
or a, a, a contradiction of America first. He talks about North Korea being an enormous problem that he's going to focus on. He's going to try to pressure the Chinese to do more about it. It's not an anti-American uh, first policy to be pro-NATO. It's actually in our interest to be pro-NATO. Trump actually thinks we're in a war with radical Islam, and he's in favor of enormous military buildup. So if your argument is just sort of inadvertently, somehow symbolically, he's returning to the policies, that's just obviously not the case. Let's bring, bring in Jennifer. What he was saying is that, um, and this is, I think, um, sort of the menace that is at the heart of his philosophy, that somehow elites have sold out America by helping other people at our expense. But that's the tale he has told. And the phrase he uses is meant as an invective towards other people who have opposed his views. He says, you haven't put America first. In essence, you've been a traitor. And that's the language and that's the dialogue that Donald Trump uses. Ian, Ian Very important point here, which is that there is a belief uh, on the part of the, many in the Trump administration uh, that you have a series of U.S. CEOs, U.S. bankers. They say they're American but actually, there's nothing American about them. They, they will hide behind uh, their shareholder and fiduciary responsibility. And if it turns out the taxes happen to be cheaper uh, in Ireland, they'll do a corporate inversion. They're not American companies anymore. Those organizations with immense money and special interests have been able to capture the American political process against the interest of the average American. Finally, we should remember where America first came from. Maggie Haberman and David Sanger interviewed Donald Trump on foreign policy. It was the first time, and they asked if he was an isolationist, and he responded strongly against it. He's like, no, people are taking advantage of us. I want better trade deals. We're the superpower. We should act like it on behalf of the American people. And they said, well, what about America first? Would you consider that a, a good definition of you? And he said, yeah, yeah, America first sounds good. <laughs> so look, if you think the New York Times is anti-Semitic and that they were the ones that pulled this from the 30s, you can have that. That's not my view, personally. Thank you. That concludes this debate, debate number one, on the night of Unresolved Trump's first 100 days. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by GSK. Each year, there are thousands of deaths from vaccine-preventable diseases in the U.S. At GSK... We develop and manufacture vaccines to help protect people against diseases like flu, meningitis, and shingles. And by exploring innovative technologies, we're working to develop new vaccines against diseases previously beyond our reach. Because the more diseases we prevent, the more lives we can save. We are going to move on to our second resolution. The motion is this, resolved. The stock market says Trump is good for the economy. The debater who will speak first on this, Rich Lowry. Rich Lowry, on the motion, the stock market says Trump is good for the economy. How do you declare? I am a yes. Uh, the timing here is quite notable. The night of the election, futures fell precipitously. Paul Krugman predicted the market would never recover, and immediately thereafter, it went on a huge run up. And it's not un hard to understand why this happened. The market considers tax cuts, deregulation, infrastructure spending to be stimulative, because broadly speaking, they are. 
stimulative. In fact, most economists agree that if you cut the corporate tax rate, that directly increases corporate profits and therefore makes companies more valuable. So just the expectation of corporate tax reform alone would be enough to drive the market up. And even Democrats of good standing, like the former Obama economist Austin Goolsbee, say this fundamentally is the dynamic that's driving the market. So to vote on this resolution, you don't have to vote on whether you like Trump's economic policies. You just have to acknowledge what's obvious. The stock market and Wall Street like his economic policies. Thank you. Jennifer Rubin, on the motion, the stock market says Trump is good for the economy. How do you declare? There will be a no. Uh, The stock market obviously got very excited once they thought the promise of Donald Trump and the policies that some of the things which uh, listed were going to come their way. In fact, none of that is coming their way. And that's why you saw the bond market begin to tank last week. It's coming to realization this man is not capable of delivering on tax reform. He's not capable of delivering on health care. He's not uh, capable of delivering basically on anything that has to go through Congress. He has done some regulatory uh, reform, and they sort of like that. Um, But ultimately, what does Wall Street tell us? It's a prediction of profits. And if profits are not there, the market will go down. Linking his success to the market is a very dangerous strategy. And when there is a course correction, it goes the other way. I'm sure Rich will be arguing that uh, Donald Trump had nothing to do with it. Thank you, Jennifer Rubin. Uh, Jamel Bowie, the motion again, the stock market says Trump is good for the economy. How do you declare no. Is the stock market correct? Should we trust the evaluation of the stock market? Now, for my part, I'm not sure that I do. Uh, I certainly, you know, I, I save some, some portion of my savings in an index fund. You know, I hope the stock market does well. But in terms of the broad economy, how it works for most Americans, how it works for ordinary people, I'm not sure that I trust the stock market's evaluation of whether or not Trump is good. And looking at the Trump administration's proposed policies from tax reform, which is heavily weighted towards the wealthiest and the largest corporations, to health care, which uh, is weighted towards taking it away from people. Um, I I think the stock market is wrong, uh, that the Trump administration is not going to be good for the economy for the reason that the Trump administration will be harmful to the vast majority of Americans who participate in and work in that economy. Thank you. Jamel Bowie. Stock market says Trump is good for the economy. Ian Bremmer, how do you declare? Oh, it's really close. Um, <laughs> I'm going to say yes, though. In another 100 days, I'd probably say no. Uh, it's, no, 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 because it's in the process of getting to no, but it's still saying yes right now. I mean, when you talk to actual market participants, they're still kind of thinking, yeah, it's really hard to govern the United States. It takes a long time, even with Republicans in the House and in the Senate. But everything he's saying on tax sounds good to us. We like it. And executive orders, regulatory rollback. Fact is, maybe bad for the environment, but over the course of the next year, year and a half, you're going to see frackers with a dollar to two dollar cheaper ability to produce energy. That's not only a tax benefit for the average American, but it's good for that economy. Uh, coal certainly isn't coming back on the basis of anything that Trump is doing. But again, we're not talking about that. Long term, is this good for the dollar? May not be, right? If you're going to trade war between the U.S. and China, that's a problem. How about a war with North Korea? We'd hate that. Is any of that priced into the market? Absolutely zero. The market is very short term. And right now, the animal spirits, you just saw the markets in Europe go up on France. That's ludicrous, except it's short term. Right now, markets are saying Trump's good. <laughs> Chris Kobach, stock market says Trump is good for the economy. How do you declare? 
Obviously, yes. Uh, I, I mean, I don't. See, I, I think it's difficult to argue otherwise. I mean, if you look at the graph of the Dow Jones, uh, right up until November fourth, it's going along at. Or I guess from your perspective, it's going along like this. And then on November fourth, which is the Friday before the election, it's at seventeen thousand eight eighty-eight. And then the next week, it rockets upward and continues on an upward climb until the beginning of February, and it's up above twenty thousand. It's been above twenty thousand since the beginning of February. Sometimes getting as high as, as uh, twenty-one thousand, but it's stayed way up there. So I think that the, this isn't coincidence, it's causation. Clearly, the election caused the stock market to surge. I think Rich is, is right. A lot of that has to do with corporate earnings, right? Corporate earnings drive the stock market. And the Trump administration, along with many in Congress, have said that they want to reduce the corporate income tax, which is among the highest in the world. If corporate income tax comes down, corporate in- earnings go up. And then you also see consumers. It's not just the companies. Consumers. The Consumer Confidence Index uh, also took a positive uh, switch right after the election has remained positive for 22 weeks. So clearly it's good for the economy from both perspectives. All right, let's jump in and Jennifer Rubin is ready to go. Um, So the issues that we're facing, which are how do you prepare American workers to get the open jobs, um, not simply to make jobs, but to have Americans to fill them, that is in large part um, the the problem to you, Jamel. The economy is not simply a bunch of Wall Street investors. The economy uh, is producers. It's ordinary workers. It's a, it's tens of millions of people, hundreds of millions of people who uh, whose prospects it's not clear Trump will actually be good for. Rich Lowry, doing? I think part of the market rally was just relief. There's not going to be more regulation. There's not going to be higher taxes. And um, I don't think the Trump agenda is a complete one. But it's a good start to deregulate, take the boot of of the government off businesses, to get a corporate system that actually makes sense. We have the highest corporate tax rate in the advanced world. So I don't think the, the stock market is irrational here. Unfortunately, Trump doesn't seem to be able to do any of this. Now, maybe things will turn around dramatically, but if you haven't done something in the first 100 days, in fact, you've failed in the first 100 days on each of your big legislative uh, initiatives, with the exception of the Supreme Court, um, that doesn't bode very well. I completely disagree with Jen. The the, the stock market and the American economy are not driven by votes that members of Congress take. Our economy is driven by psychological factors, by consumer confidence, by people making decisions that in turn push other people to make the same decisions. That's the market, not the economy. Well, but the... the, the, the exactly. And the market, the, the free market decisions, in turn, pr- drive the strength of the economy. Jamel Bowie? Immediately after the election, when asked about their assessment of the economy and broken down by partisanship, Republicans immediately went from being, now this economy is crap, to this economy is great. And so how much of what you're describing is actually representative of anything? How much of it's just sort of the irrational passions of partisans when, when the actual conditions on the ground haven't really changed Ian much? Yeah, so look, uh, first of all, corporations don't expect U.S. officials to do an awful lot. They just want the government to keep working. In other words, don't break through the debt limit. Don't shut government down. But I don't want you to touch an awful lot, right? Like, I don't want a lot of additional legislation. From that perspective, accomplishing little on the legislative front and regulatory rollback is kind of a corporate wet dream, right? So, uh, you know, I, I do think um, that is going to get you uh, more benefits, and, and it definitely shows that the economy is doing better and that the stock market is doing better. I think the likely connection of that to the average American worker is increasingly distant. 
Jennifer Rubin. If their definition is that the stock market takes off, that's good for the economy. The stock market had a huge run up during President Obama. So obviously that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is growth in average wages. We're talking about employment. We're talking about uh, a higher participation rate. We're talking about, in essence, a recovery for the middle class. Um, and the things that Donald Trump has recommended um, are not really going to get us there. Okay, I want to point out, just for the record, on this, on this motion, we have three yeses and two noes. I want to go to Rich Lowry. I think... Trump at his best, and this is an optimistic interpretation, he's going to do kind of these traditional stimulative things to try to create a broader environment for growth and create more jobs. And he's going to try to get a tighter labor market, both by trying to create a culture that tilts more against outsourcing and also by reducing the flow of low-skilled immigration. Even if Trump were successful, the kinds of policies that the Trump administration supports, they say nothing about wealth inequality, they say nothing about racial wealth inequality, they say nothing about the concentration of business and corporations across the country, which does have a deleterious effect on people in the middle of the country. Add it all together, and you have a a footprint for the typical American um, that is very negative. Chris Kovac. It is undoubtedly true that there has been wage stagnation um, in blue-collar jobs. Now, if we do what Trump is already doing, he doesn't need to wait on Congress to do this, he's already increased uh, removals of people illegally in the country, you will, with the removal of these individuals, open up jobs for Americans who are out of work. And that will, in turn, cause wages to go up, too, as, we, as you decrease the supply with the illegal labor leaving the pool. When you have a jobs versus environment uh, conflict, Trump has said he's going to pick jobs. So Keystone XL, he's already done that. And so that's another example of jobs created in the short short term without having to wait on Congress. Jennifer Rubin. Well, I suppose if you believe that throwing out illegal immigrants is going to create coal jobs and industrial jobs in the Midwest, then Chris is right. If you actually think that the problem for those displaced workers has nothing whatsoever to do with illegal immigrants who aren't even in the states that we're talking about, then I think that's not a very good argument. I I think Jen believes in classic free market economics, except for when it comes to supply and demand in the labor market. If you have something like 40% of workers in this country without a high school degree who are immigrants, that is going to have an effect on people's wages. I love free market people who say supply and demand always applies, but we could have as many immigrants as we want. and has no effect on our economy That's or on our wages. It's not like supply and demand. That because workers also create demand, also spur other industries, that it doesn't work that way. Ian Bremmer, so you're going to get the last word. I would suggest you pick up a book in from the Hoover Institute. Look, I mean, Ian labor increasingly is going away or coming because of technology, not because of globalization, not because of those jobs moving. And, I mean, look... What's interesting is, are we going to see, given that there's this massive inequality, are we going to see increased economic growth under the policies that we put in place? And in the short term, the answer to that, according to not only the economists and the animal spirits and the markets and the investment flows, is obviously, evidently, yes. Is it sustainable over the medium to long term? Probably not, especially with the kinds of policies Trump's going to put in place that everyone else is talking about. But that's not the question. And that concludes this debate. Debate number two on our night of unresolved, the first 100 days of Trump.
We're going to move on to resolution number three. Resolution number three is Trump has picked a terrific team. Our first speaker on this one, Chris Kobach. Chris Kobach, on the motion, Trump has picked a terrific team. How do you declare? Against the, uh, the, the jitters of the audience, I'm going to say yes on this. <laughs> Your one minute starts now. No challenge too great. No, look, uh, the, the Trump's, look, all uh, presidents to a certain extent pick a great team. They're, you always get the, the cream of the crop wanting to be in the president's cabinet, in the White House. So you always have talented people who, who've risen to the top of their field. So this is kind of a tough question. I'm looking at it from, is this team talented in what he has chosen them to do, which is execute uh, the laws of the United States? And, and so how do you measure that? Well, they all have fine resumes, but let's look at uh, the White House team. Um, one thing we can see that Trump has done very far and above what other presidencies have done, and that is in the first 100 days, he's had so far 25 executive orders. And you say, well, executive order, that's no big deal. Actually, it is. It requires a lot of legal analysis and policy analysis and all kinds of eyeballs on it. Uh, 25 of them in the first 100 days, Obama had 19, Bush had 11, Clinton had 13. There's one empirical indicator that his team is getting things done. Now, if you disagree with what they like, you may disagree with what Trump's like. But what, Trump, what Trump likes. But the fact that you disagree with the policy doesn't mean okay. that they're a bad team. Got to stop you. Move on to Rich Lowry. On the motion, Trump has picked a terrific team. How do you declare? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Through my extensive reading of Hoover Institution briefing books over the years, <laughs> I, I have learned that it's customary in the United States government for the National Security Advisor to last at least one month, right? <laughs> Michael Flynn didn't make it, and he was actually acting as an agent of foreign interest, Turkish interest, during the campaign. And I also highly doubt it that some of the very best people to advise the President of the United States just happened to be his son-in-law and his daughter, <laughs> right? Now, Jer- Jared Kushner... By, by all accounts, a very impressive and, and decent guy. But what qualifies him to be quasi-secretary of state? Um, then there's Trump's management style, where you have all these White House advisors. They really they follow themselves around from meeting to meeting like ducks crossing a road because they're all afraid there'll be some major decision made in a snap basis and they'll be left out of it. So look, are there impressive people on the team? Yes. Is it a terrific team? Sadly, no. Jennifer Rubin, Trump has picked a terrific team. You say yes or no? I know it's going to shock you, but no. I got two words for you. Sean Spicer. (laughs) Steve Bannon. There are many people who are not qualified, and this is the one case where the president has specifically not chosen the cream of the crop intentionally because they have been disloyal in some respect. He has ruled out a whole slew of very fine conservative, um, uh, some Democrats as well, advisors who could really have helped him here. Um, And he says they can't come on board because they wrote something nasty or they said something nasty. That's his prerogative, but that means he doesn't have the cream of the crop. I also would not bring up executive orders if I were Chris. Um, I do seem to remember a travel ban that was struck down by just about every court, in part because the rather um, uncareful um, White House counsel thought that he could amend it in order to fix the uh, order by excluding uh, green cards, when in fact the president had to reissue it. Okay. Jamel Bowie, Trump has picked a terrific team. Are you yes or no? Obviously, I'm a no here. Um, 
if we're thinking about it on Trump's own terms, has he chosen a team that can competently execute his vision, that can competently run his administration? I think the clear answer is, is no. From his White House, Jen mentioned Steve Bannon. Uh, that's, he, he's shown no evidence of being a particularly skilled advisor. The same goes for Stephen Miller, uh, the other one of the two Steves in the White House. If you look at cabinet agencies, uh, Rex Tillerson seems to be growing into the job, but by all accounts, he is not a competent manager of the State Department. Uh, ben Carson, uh, the Secretary of uh, Housing and Urban Development, doesn't appear to know what the agency is there for. <laughs> Go down the line and you find even even Scott Pruitt, the EPA director, who is there as sort of a critic of the EPA, doesn't appear to be a competent manager of the EPA. And so even, even on the, the terms Trump set up for himself, none of these people seem to be any good at managing government. And this is before we get to the fact that huge numbers of positions haven't even been filled. Thank you. Ian Bremmer, on the motion, Trump has picked a terrific team. Are you yes or no? No. I, I need to tell the people who can only hear this moment that you did a head fake on that one. I did a head fake on that yeah, one. You're I a did. no. You are a no. I am a no. I don't even believe you're a yes, honestly. I just... I think... I think... But no, because first of all, you said, did Trump pick a terrific team, right? You can say there are a lot of competent people, more solid than expected. You can't say... First of all, he didn't pick... You do not pick your relatives, Right? <laughs> Your relatives, they're there. They're stuck with them. They're around. He's like, I got to give them jobs. So there they are, right? I mean, at least Melania is kind of sidelined. So that's a good thing. But, but no, Jared and Ivanka, no. And, and Ben Carson, like, I mean, they wanted a black guy on cabinet. But, but no, but seriously, I don't know much about Jamel's background, but I know he'd be better at HUD than Ben Carson, right? I mean, I know what it stands exactly. for. Exactly. Rick Perry. He said that that was he wanted to get rid of three departments and the one he couldn't remember on the debate stage, they gave to him. Okay? So, I mean, where are we going from this? This is a no. All right. I want to point out we have four no's and one yes. Resolution number three is Trump has picked a terrific team. Uh, Chris Kobach, in the, this is interesting because in the interest of sort of fair amount of time for both sides, you're going to get a lot more time talking than anybody else. So you're on the defensive on this one. When you look at the team and you say, well, what about these first hundred days? Why hasn't the State Department accomplished anything yet? Why hasn't this? You, you also have to remember this. Congress, the Senate has been very slow to confirm people, excruciatingly slow to confirm people. So the team is actually not fielding a full team on the field. They're not playing in the NFL with 11 players. They're playing with two players right now, the secretary and the deputy secretary. They don't even have the undersecretaries and the assistants. I I want to go to Rich Lowry because you are the only one not frowning right now. (laughs) I'm thinking of changing my vote just to make it more sporting to uh, support Chris here. Stay where you are. Um, What can I say? Uh, I, I think the team's gotten better. You know, H.R. McMaster is a great national security advisor, a wonderful man, but it's just not, it's not an impressive team. As Jen pointed out, there, there's, there's a huge swath of the Republican Party that didn't support him or wrote letters saying we're opposed to him. And, you know, for understandable reasons, he wants people loyal to him. So that immediately cuts out a huge element of the talent. Plus, for whatever reason, they've just been very slow to nominate people. So I think the best you could say, the best grade you could give them would be an incomplete. Ian Bremmer? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, the Flynn debacle is already clear and, and a world record. Um, but, you know, he did, but then he ended up with a better national security advisor. This is what happened at state. He wanted Giuliani, which would have been an unmitigated disaster, right? Tillerson comes in, who he'd never met before, and he's like, Rex, you know, Rex is a big guy, his name's Rex, kind of looks like a secretary of state. And I mean, you know, his favorite author's Anne Rand, and Trump thinks he's Howard Rourke. So, I mean, you can see how that works, right? But, but that wasn't his pick. And so now, of course, you've got to actually, I think, a very capable secretary of state, but one that doesn't actually have access to the president. I mean, I'd love to say you could give this guy an incomplete on this. It's so much worse okay, than that. Okay, let me bring Jennifer Rubin. Um, Ian is right. I think the bigger issue with um, Ivanka and with uh, Jared Kushner is not simply that they're totally unqualified, which they are, but that they have, like Trump himself, massive conflicts of interest. And what they are creating is a cesspool of corruption. They are flying in the face of, yes, the emoluments clause, which applies to them because they are White House officials, White House employees as well. Um, And that Republicans, unfortunately, have sort of thrown constitutional niceties and a concern for good governance out the window because it's their guy, so they have to protect him. Well, I guess that's politics, but it's pretty cruddy for the country. Okay. Um I, I, I want to weave Jamel back into the conversation. So, Chris, it's you again, and then I want to go to Jamel. Well, you know, I think you, you, you have conflict of interest questions in all, in all administrations. And obviously when you have... No, you don't. Well, no, you do. No, I mean, you and, don't. And members of members, <laughs> secretaries frequently have to recuse themselves, especially at, like, the Justice Department. Attorneys have to recuse themselves all the time. As long as appropriate recusal is done, you can, you can deal with conflicts of interest. Now, again, as long as the recusals occur when recusals should no, occur. No, they actually divest themselves. And, in fact, most of the people in his cabinet, with the exception of his son and daughter, have done so, including Rex Tillerson, to his credit. What no. you're saying is then they, they, they absolutely cannot serve. And if that's your position, that you just can't do that, then that, that, that's okay. fair enough. You're but right. I mean, you're, no, no one's forcing Jared and Ivanka to be in the White House, <laughs> right? Like, they, if they want to serve, then they divest themselves of their assets. Problem solved. I want to I get to something you, you said, Chris, earlier. The travel ban may end up staying in place, and so that reflects well on the people who crafted it. But the fact that the immediate unveiling of the travel ban plunged the administration into chaos, which took weeks to get out of, and which likely energized the opposition even more, I think is like on its face evidence that the team is not terrific. If, if, if the Trump administration did any executive order in that issue, in that area of travel and refugees and, immig- and legal immigration, they were going to get sued. So by your definition, they were always going to fail in that because of, just because a lawsuit happened, which in turn caused the chaos. No, but, but a lawsuit... That, that was going to happen no matter what. A lawsuit, again, so... The White House attempted to pass a massive health care reform bill in a three- to four-week span. Just a, a quick uh, civics reminder, White Houses don't pass bills. Congress passes bills. And are to you, say you, that... Are you telling me that the White House had nothing to do with the attempt to push this bill through? Is that, your, of, is that of what course, you're claiming? But the White House cannot unilaterally that's ensure not, that a bill passes. Chris, are, 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 are you okay in, in terms of the foreign one? It's because it's feeling a little whack-a-mole right now. I'm feeling bad for you. <laughs> yeah, look, I'll, if you want me to back off on him, no, I will. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> look, Trump 
promised the American people that he was going to turn over the tables and that he was going to aggressively rock the boat when he came to Washington. And so we shouldn't assume that he would come in and appoint the type of person uh, that a typical politician would appoint. And it does reflect some of the, some of the promises that he made. I mean, uh, Pruitt uh, in the EPA is a perfect example. Uh, he's, Trump is hostile to a lot of what the EPA has done. And so, I, you know, I, I, I'm not surprised. By you can say, well, these are so unconventional. Yeah, they are unconventional. Then these are people who may be hostile to the very agency that they're going to. Right. What better person to enact Trump's agenda? And then that concludes our third debate on this night where our theme is unresolved Trump's first 100 days. We will move on to our fourth motion. The press is out to get Trump. Our first speaker in this round will be Jamel Bowie. How do you declare? I declared yes, actually, on this one. Um, I think if, if you look at the reaction of mainstream media in the wake of Trump's election, it was very much not just, oh, we're going to cover this president as we would cover any president. It was explicitly adversarial. It was this this president is potentially a threat to the freedom of the press, and we're going to treat him accordingly. Um, now, I don't think that's a bad stance at all to take. That's, in fact, in fact the stance I took. But if we're, if we're evaluating the resolution here, is the press out to get Trump? I think, I think it very much is. Now, this is balanced against the fact that for some elements of the press, like the cable news uh, press, Trump is a huge moneymaker, right? People want to watch Trump on TV. There's a big incentive to constantly kind of hang on Trump's every words. But for, for, main, for mainstream newspapers, for many, many magazines, I think there, very is, there is an obvious antagonism towards the Trump administration. It's just antagonism I think is warranted, uh, but it's there, and it's be silly to deny it. Thank you, Jamel Bowie. Ian Bremmer, the press is out to get Trump. How do you declare? Uh, I say yes. And uh, look, I mean, Trump's, Trump hates pets. He hates dogs, right? I mean, Trump doesn't drink. And he treats his wives as objects. So, I mean, for all of these reasons, he's hard to relate to as a human being, right? And, and the people that I know in the press, right, I mean, I would say like 95% of the mainstream media, just as individuals, find Trump odious. And, 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 you know, they were absolutely willing to go with it when it was entertainment at the beginning. But now that it's actually like he's president, they want him to fail. And they're willing to go with that. Look, their jobs are not getting any easier. They're not making a lot of money. A lot of them getting fired, right? Media's kind of going to hell. They're absolutely against him. And I think that absolutely is hurting our mainstream media across the board. It is undermining the legitimacy of the New York Times and the rest. I'm not with Jamal in thinking it's good for the country. Chris Kobach. Um, look, I'd say a number of things. One, it's empirically provable. I don't know how many of you saw it, but today the Media Research Center came out with a study, and they found that Trump has received more hostile treatment uh, in the broadcast media than any president in history since they've been recording this. Uh, uh, from January 20th to April 9th, 89% of the broadcast media coverage was negative. They looked at 1,500 on-air statements that were negative compared to 186 on-air statements that were positive. So, I mean, you, can, you could look at some objective things and say, yes, the, the press does seem to be out to get Trump. Another example of this is what's going on right now in the media this week, the whole uh, budget uh, uh, squabble or debate about the wall. Now, remember four years ago when uh, a Republican Congress was refusing or was a, a thinking they might refuse to give President uh, Obama the appropriations in the budget bill uh, for Obamacare, they said the Republicans are threatening a, a, a shutdown of the government. 
Now, where Democrats in the Senate are threatening not to give a budget bill because of appropriations for the wall, they're saying the president is threatening a budget shutdown. It's a clear double standard. The press is so obviously leaning one way. Lowry, sorry. I'm How did you declare the motion? <laughs> the press is out to get Trump. I'm going to vote yes, but only to be on the same side as Jamel, finally, this <laughs> evening. Uh, I know a lot of reporters... I don't know one reporter who supports Trump or becomes within a hundred miles of supporting Trump. And a lot of them try to be objective, but there's still a haze of loathing around their coverage of Donald Trump. During the campaign, the New York Times, almost every day, literally, devoted the lead of the newspaper to something critical or hostile to Donald Trump. A lot of it justified. But if you just read the Times, you would have had no idea, no idea there was some significant chance of this man actually becoming president of the United States. You never would have known. And the New York Times, actually, the editors ran a mea culpa letter, in effect, after the election, saying, you know, we, we might have missed this one, guys. But immediately, like three days later, they snapped back to form. So is the rest of the media. That's why you have a lot of half-baked and tendentious stories that are undermining and discrediting and good reporting about Trump. So you don't have to agree with Trump's uh, tax on the press to support this resolution. You just have to acknowledge what's obvious, which is that sometimes even paranoics have enemies. <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer Rubin, finally on the motion, the press is out to get Trump. Yes or no? <laughs> You're a no. I got to do that, right? I voted no for the listeners. Um, I vote no on this, um, not for any of the reasons that the gentleman to my right um, said, but because the press doesn't really have a meaning anymore. Rich isn't out to get the president. He's the press. Fox News isn't out to get the president. They're the press. Um, Breitbart isn't out to get the president. They're the press. Um, are some outlets um, very antagonistic and very, um, I think, uh, forceful, aggressive in going after the president because he lies a lot? Yes. Um, but there are also people who are really sort of painful cheerleaders for this president. And that's the nature of the media we have. We may not like it, but the media that you and you and you watch probably um, is somewhat hostile to Trump, but the media that Rich watches isn't. Um, and I don't think this is a good thing. I don't defend the silos, but I think there's plenty of support out there for him if you look in the right places. Okay, thank you. So we have four yeses and one no. Uh, thus saving our debate by <laughs> putting that note. I was going to have to go to the audience to find a no vote. Um, Jamel, I find it interesting that you and, um, and, and Ian have opposite takes on... Wh I think that you have opposite takes on whether this is a good thing. I may be wrong about that. If you view Trump as a threat to the free press, as a threat to pluralism, then there is a real case, right, that mainstream outlets, that the, that the press as an institution, which doesn't just exist to defend its own prerogatives, but exi exists as a part of our democracy that is committed to the values of our democracy, it is appropriate for that press to be uh, more critical and, and, and scrutinize more and even be a little antagonistic towards a figure and a, a sort of political style that is um, itself very hostile to uh, our democracy as we understand it. Ian Bremer. I think there's a judgment call here because there are a few things about Trump that are different from other presidents, right? There's a level of incompetence 
there's a level of corruption, and there's a level of authoritarianism. And all three things you find in other presidents, but you find more of them in Trump. Now, you're saying that if it's mostly an authoritarian problem, then the, the press needs to just get out there and hit them as hard as possible. I think you're right, but that's not my judgment. My judgment is this presidency is mostly about incompetence. Chris Kobach, I think a lot of them are attacking him in part because Trump declared war on them as much as they declared war on him. I don't know how many people in this room attended a a Trump rally. I was at a couple of them during the campaign. And at every rally, he would have the audience at some point, for effect, turn to the media pool and boo, or, or he'd make some joke about them. And these reporters, for the first time in their lives, were actually the subject of the attention of all of this audience. And it was really negative attention. So I think a lot of them have something visceral of, like, this guy doesn't like us, so we don't like him. So I, I think there is a, there's a distinction to be made between politicians merely disliking the press and whipping up anger at journalists and casting them as somehow illegitimate actors in this game of democracy. It's time to hear from our one no vote, Jennifer Rubin. Um, Well, I would point out, however, that for all of his hostility to the mainstream media, what does he do when he wants to get a piece of information out? He didn't go into the uh, Wall Street Journal editorial rooms during the campaign. He came to the New York Times and he came to the Washington Post. Trump has used the media his entire career. He has played this game to the hilt. Whether he really hates them or not, um, this is his shtick. He has done it from the get-go. And he actually does know the respected media outlets because those are the people he calls when he wants to break news. Chris Kobach. uh, On that point, Trump is not acting viscerally as some reporters may be. He's acting cerebrally. He is actually, he is manipulating the press better than any president has manipulated the press in the modern media era. He knows how to get under people's skin. And so he deliberately picks a fight if he knows that the fight will benefit him. To Jennifer. It did help him during the campaign. But I would argue very strongly it's not helping him anymore. His level of trust and credibility is even lower than the media's now. He's, it's not working. It doesn't help him to get things through Congress. It doesn't help him to vilify the press. It's very difficult to cover a president who lies this much. Um, and, um, and I don't mean political lies. Obviously, there's just facts that aren't so. And he says it again and again, either because he doesn't read and he doesn't know things or because he convinces himself or because he can. He lies a lot. The press understandably feels that there is a fact-checking role to be had. No one opposes fact-checking. But look, they're, they're clearly, there's a love and hate relationship on both sides. The, the press fears and loathes him, but he's great for ratings and everyone's subscriptions are going up. But I think the play for the press here, when you're being attacked this vociferously and viciously by a very powerful person for being biased and unfair, you shouldn't react in kind. You actually should take a step back and be more fair-minded and more professional, and that they clearly haven't been able to do. And just a key part of Jen's argument is, is almost a scholastic argument that we don't know what the press is. We can't define it. You know, and National Review and the New York Times taken together have five million subscribers. Well, that might be true, but we are a very small slice of that five million, and people still look at the broadcast, the three big broadcast networks, and there are a couple few big newspapers that define the tone of the press coverage in this country, and they are clearly hostile to President Trump. So, I mean, I I think that Brexit, Le Pen, Melanchon, Trump, 
Sanders, these are protest votes. And fundamentally, they're protest against established political parties, against public intellectuals, against mainstream media, against elites, against science, against research. And, I mean, in that regard, Trump deciding that he is going to take on in theatric and reality television uh, uh, form, TV form, the, the mainstream media in the U.S. is an extremely smart thing for him to do and something he'll be able to continue to ride for quite some time. But I also think we have been talking about only one part of the media. We haven't talked much about the media he likes the most, which is social media, because he can control it. He can get the information out directly. Now, social media is owned by Silicon Valley. I suspect that we are going to see a very big structural fight between Silicon Valley, social media, Bezos, and maybe a little Washington Post, too, against the White House. It's going to get larger going forward, not smaller. And that's one where the media needs to really watch out. Jennifer Rubin. Um, I don't think um, he's going to be able to stop doing this. And it's not because it's working. It's because he can't. Um, This is a man with... No self-control, no self-awareness, and he does this the way you breathe oxygen. So he will continue to do this whether it's productive or not. And I think it has ceased to be productive. Um, We haven't asked the mega question, has his 100 days been successful? But according to a very large percentage of Americans, it's not been. Um, And I don't think this is helping. I think it... um, Go, it re-raises and it cements this feeling that this guy is not all there. So at some point, it's not going to work. Um, and maybe you should try something else. And that concludes debate number four. Thank you very much. Um, regulars for our debates know that uh, Intelligence Squared, I've said this many times before, we work and operate as a philanthropy. Um, and so we rely on the public for support as well. So uh, we've gotten very, very uh, digital in the way we're asking for support, and that is that you can text to a number. If you text the word debate, very clever, to the number 797979, you'll be sent a link where you can make a contribution to us, and we would very, very much appreciate it if you could do that. All right. I now have the results of the audience vote, resolution by resolution. Remember, we have worked through four resolutions, four debates. You voted before you heard all of the arguments and you voted again after you heard the arguments and what we're looking for is to see which way this swing went on the first motion america first is a sound policy direction the swing went strongly to yes by 17 percent and that was the side argued by ian by chris and by rich in the second debate the stock market says trump is good for the economy the swing went to no by just a little bit by two percent That was argued by Jamel and by Jennifer. On the third debate, Trump has picked a terrific team. The swing went just a little bit towards no, argued by Jamel, Ian, Rich, and Jennifer. And on the fourth debate, the press is out to get Trump, argued by Jamel, Ian, Chris, and Rich. The swing went to yes. So those are our results. What it shows us is that because you swung, you all listened. And we appreciate that. That's our goal here. Thank you so much for taking part tonight. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was held in front of a live audience at the Manhattan Center Studios in New York City. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. 
Clea Chang, Chief Operating Officer, Leah Matho, Vice President of Programming, Chris Kamakawa as Director of Editorial Operations, Kristen Muller and Rob Christensen are the radio producers, Richie Clark is the audio engineer, and I'm your host, John Donvan. You can now stream all of our debates on demand on Apple TV and Roku devices with the new IQ2US app. For more information on that or to purchase tickets to future events, visit iq2us.org. These debates are made possible by generous contributions from listeners like you and with support from the Connor Davis Family Foundation, David A. Coulter, Thomas Campbell Jackson, Robert Epstein, Christopher W. Johnson Charitable Trust, Ilona Namath and Alan Quasha, George L. Orstrom Jr. Foundation, Jerry Orstrom, Dr. Kelly Posner Gerstenhaber, the Rosencrantz Foundation, the Mortimer D. Sackler Foundation, Jennifer and Philippe Salendi, the Paul E. Singer Foundation, Edward Stern and Stephanie Rhine, and Emily and Antoine Van Actmail. From Intelligence Squared U.S., Thank you to all of you.